Uh, y'all, welcome to REF. It's great to see you tonight, especially on this night before spring break. And uh, man, I just want to say that REF is a campus ministry that is always looking to proclaim what Jesus has done and who Jesus is for every person on this campus. Um, whether you believe or you don't believe, where you're, whether you're wrestling with your faith or what you want to do with faith or where you are at in faith, um, we really want to meet you where you are and we really want to love you where you are and invite you into who Jesus is and what he's done and the promises that God has made through him because we think that ultimately at the end of the day that's the thing that everybody most needs um, because we've experienced that for ourselves and we think that's what other folks need as well um, so we want to invite you into that and we invite you to proclaim that with us and to, to live according to that with us as well. And part of why we're reading through the book of Galatians this semester is because it's all about the good news. And it's all about who Jesus is and what he's done. And the Galatians, shockingly enough, are people just like us whose tendency of their heart is to say Jesus plus something else is what will make me feel full. Jesus plus something else is how God will like me, accept me, approve of me, and how I'll deal with myself and other people. And Paul is saying, actually, it's just Jesus. You don't need anything else. Um, that if when we take something else and add it to Jesus, what always happens is we don't look at Jesus, we look at that other thing. And so what Paul wants to do, what we want to do as we go through this, is to look at Jesus and see him as the cure for all of our hurts and aches and burdens of our sins and what life is like in a fallen world. So I'm going to read this passage for us tonight. It's in our bulletin. If you want to look and follow along with me, I'm going to pray for us and we'll get started. This is Paul writing. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Let me pray for us and get started. Um, Jesus, I pray that you would guide us now in all truth. Um, Lord, that you would, for freedom, set us free. And God, that you would free us from the burden to prove ourselves, the burden to make ourselves feel like we could be, ever be enough. Uh, but Lord, help us rest under what you've done and what you promise and, and who you are. Um, God, send your spirit now that we might cry along with what you've called us to, of Abba, Father, and God, that we might know your freedom. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts now be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So a while back, there was a photojournalist named Kate Salisbury. She did a TED Talk uh, called As American as Chop Suey. And she based that on an article that she wrote called American Dreams and a Chinese Takeout. And in that, she talked about the experience of meeting up with the people who run New York City's Chinese takeout scene. I'm going to read you all some excerpts from what she wrote. She says, the life of a Chinese cook is grueling and monotonous. Each day begins with the same way. 
Workers report to their restaurant around 11 a.m., then spend the next 12 hours prepping ingredients, flash frying orders, and maneuvering a walk at scorching temperatures until closing at 11 p.m. That leaves just enough time to go home, shower off the kitchen grease, and sleep before doing it all over again the next day. I frequent an employment center hoping to meet workers who'd be interested in sharing their stories. One man responds with exasperation. What stories, he asks. Every day is the same. I wake up, go to work, come home, wake up, go to work, come home. He's lived that reality for 24 years. Last part here. The great irony of working in the restaurant industry as a Chinese immigrant is that your labor plays a direct hand in preserving an iconic, much beloved staple of U.S. culture, Chinese takeout. And yet you're almost wholly excluded from American life because of your inability to communicate. There's never enough time to learn English. There are few resources and connections available with which to navigate mainstream society. What is the irony that she's putting her finger on there? The irony is that for someone working in the takeout industry, he or she is not feeling or participating in or enjoying the American dream. And why is that? Because they're working to achieve the American dream and to prop up American stuff, Chinese takeout. They're working to achieve and experience it so hard that they never get a chance to enter into it and enjoy it. And it's ironic, right? But what I want to suggest to you is that it's a picture of what the Christian life could feel like for some of us. Like there are people who've been around this stuff for a while and say, yeah, I really want to love these things. I really want to know God and love God and worship him and be around him and his stuff. And I'm trying to do the right thing. I want to be faithful to him and because of him. But the grind and the time and the energy of all these things in my life, even trying to do things for him and with him, makes it so that I feel like I can't even really enjoy him. Especially at this point in the semester, it can feel like some of you are already so overwhelmed with the to-dos in front of you. And here it can feel like treating God is maybe like another to-do, right? Like not assuming everyone here is a Christian. If you're not, we're glad that you're with us. But if you are one, I have to ask, do you ever feel that way? Like you're doing all this stuff and you're overwhelmed with school and work and internships and you're juggling all those things. And God gets put into the, maybe if I have some free time at the end of the night before I go to bed box, right? You know that doesn't have to be the way it is. And yet it is the way that it is. If that's you, I think this passage has things to say to us. Tonight I want to look at this and I'll break it into two points. I want to talk about our former slavery. And I want to talk about our current adoption. Our former slavery and our current adoption. So what's our former slavery? Well, Paul is saying here that there was a time in the history of God's people that even though they were God's children, they were guided by and taught how to live by what he calls the elementary principles of the world. And the ancient world thought of these as like the basic elements of what keeps the universe together. For them, it was water, earth, fire, wind, uh, everything short of like Captain Planet. But in the Jewish religion, it was the festivals, it was the months, it was the seasons, it was the years. This was the basic stuff that makes the world work and structures the world. It's what keeps the trains running on time. And in our lives, this might be things like Make a plan, stick to a plan, keep my nose clean, work hard, follow the law, be kind, go to work, do a good job. If I do those things, I'll live. My life will be full. But Paul is saying, actually, it could just be the opposite. That these things can teach us a way to live, but they cannot give life. 
In fact, it can actually be completely 180 from how we would think it is. Because instead of giving life, they can actually be the means to more slavery. What would this be for us? Well, think about it in terms of wisdom. I mean, oftentimes at this point of the year, it can seem like, well, I need to be wise with my time. I need to go to bed, get my eight. I need to eat well. I need to exercise. I need to stay off social media as much as I can and focus on school. I need to set good priorities. And if I do those things and I do them well, I'll get life with a capital L at the end of that. And those things are great in their way. May we all do them and be better for it. But do they have the power to give the sort of capital L life that we hope that they will? No. I mean, going to bed on time, exercising, eating salads can be really helpful. But functionally, what happens to our hearts when we look to them for life? They promise us health, beauty, power, safety. They cannot deliver on those things in the way that we long for them to deliver on them. Think about it like this. Have you ever, and this is just a theoretical person out there, so it's probably not you, but have you ever been under the gun to finish a deadline and like grind out a paper or study for a test that's coming right down the pipe and you feel the pressure of that sitting on your shoulders, but instead of locking it in and really focusing on the task at hand, you open up TikTok or Insta and you scroll and you scroll and you scroll. I mean, this is a theoretical person, so it's probably not you. But when we look to those apps to fix the anxiety inside of us, it never works, does it? Like, they can't do that thing. They're fun in their own right. They're good in their own right. But they won't save us from our deadlines. And they certainly have no power to give life. Yet we ask them to do that thing for us sometimes, don't we? Hold that in your mind and think about this. Look, some of you wonder sometimes when you come into RUF or you go to one of our Bible studies or sit across from me and Isaac and Jackson, like, why do we talk about grace so much here? Like, I get it. I get it. I get it. No one is saved but by grace. Let's move on. Tell me the things I need to do. Look, the reason we talk about this is because grace isn't just the beginning of being a Christian and then you move on to something new. But living and understanding God's unmerited love and affection for you is what it means to be a Christian. Like, get all the sleep you want. And without grace, your heart is restless. Do all the evangelism you want. And without grace, you'll become a legalist. Do all the Bible reading you want. And without grace, it will be as if you came within sight of a rich meal and you ate nothing. Look, this is why the gospel is the true fairy tale that we long for. Because it says that a wonderful prince left everything he had to marry a woman who had nothing. And when she married him, she got everything that he had. Because that's the true story of the world. That's the true thing that we need, which is to be loved unconditionally. And to live in the reality of what someone else has done and given to us. Look, to be a Christian, to wrestle with This former slavery means you don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything to earn. You're given everything. And the irony of the Christian life is that we have everything that we most need. Love, acceptance, approval, affection at no cost to ourselves. The certainty that whatever happens to us, it will turn out all right. We have all those things given to us and we're still working to try to gain the very things that we already have. Like we're work for affection. 
We work for love. We work for attention from someone who matters. And yet you already have it. Like, why do you work so hard to be noticed? Why do you feel so crushed when it seems like other people are getting ahead, even though you're working hard and it looks like you're standing still? Because you forget that God adores you and has given you everything you need to be embraced and approved of by him. And instead, what it feels like on our insides is, well, I don't know, I'm just alone doing my own thing. Nobody really sees me. Nobody cares. Appearances are everything. I need to fill up my schedule with as many things as I possibly can. That to be busy and tired is to be righteous. I'm going to post as much as I can, crush the meme game, live from like to like, never stop running, doing, achieving. Like That is just the tendency of our heart. Do you see why grace is this thing that we never outgrow? Because we're bent in the other direction. Our hearts are always craving love and acceptance. We're needy in that way. And the need to marinate in God's love for us in Jesus is evergreen. Look, the goal of Christianity is not to make God this high-pressure authority figure that you've got to please and who you know, is going to give you religious assignments instead of educational assignments. Like He's not replacing studying midterms with studying for the Bible or networking for a job uh, with meeting people in order to evangelize them, evangelize them, though that is sometimes how it comes across from guys like me. But the goal of Christianity is that you'd be redeemed, bought back from under the law so that you would receive adoption as sons and live in the freedom that comes from that. And that's not a sexist thing. What Paul means when he says the son's peace is that God is saying whoever you are and wherever you come from, I want to give you exactly what Jesus has. I want to set you free from having to perform for other people. I want to set you free from having to live by a law that was never going to give you life. Because when we forget grace, what happens? We forget who we really are. We forget that we're not someone that has to pretend to perform. We forget that we're someone that is already beloved by God. And that he sees through all of our pretending and all of our performing. And so we don't have to do those things anymore. But we can actually be free to just to be who we are in Jesus and love people around us. It's sort of like this. Um, do you remember the Pixar movie, The Incredibles? There's an amazing scene in this when Mr. Incredible's been captured and taken to the evil genius's island lair. And his wife, Mrs. Incredible, a.k.a. Elastigirl, goes to see Edna, that three-foot-tall woman with like a ten-foot-tall personality who makes all the superhero suits. And Elastigirl is crying. She's feeling tons of shame because she thinks that Mr. Incredible has run off with some other person and left her to have an affair. Really, he's been kidnapped by this villain. But she thinks she's boring. She thinks she's not exciting. She, she thinks there's nothing interesting or glamorous about her at all that anyone would be attracted to her. And she says to Edna, I'm losing him. What will I do? And then Edna looks at her and says, what will you do? What are you talking about? She takes this rolled up newspaper and like whacks her with it and says to her, what will you do? Is that even a question? You are Elastigirl. You will show him that you remember that he is Mr. Incredible and you will remind him who you are. And it's an amazing scene. Because the problem isn't that she has the ability to engage with her husband and love her husband. 
The problem is that she forgot who she was as she did it. And we do the same thing. But how do we remember who we are? We remember our adoption. Look what Paul says here. But when the fullness of time had come, when the right time, the right moment in history got to this place, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, so he's a real person. Born under the law, just like us. To redeem those who are under the law. To buy us back so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, because we have everything that he has, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And think about it like this. On the cross, what does Jesus cry out as he's dying? Not, my father, my father. Though that was how he's always spoken before, but he cries out, my God, my God. And he does so because Jesus is disowned on the cross by the Father and counted as sin so that you could be owned by the Father and counted as righteous. Like that's not cosmic child abuse. That's a plan that the Father and the Son came up with, which comes in the fullness of time so that we might receive what Jesus has. The point of Jesus' death on the cross is not just that God would forgive you and send you on your way to do your thing as an individual, but so that God could welcome you and adopt you and bring you to his house. So you're not just pardoned and sent on your way. You're forgiven and made a child, beloved and precious and drawn into his heart. This is so important for us. Look, some of you have had really bad fathers. You've had dads who were never really available for you, were never really wanted to be close to you. They always put a ton of pressure on you. Some of you had dads that abused you or abused your mom or your sister or your brother. Some left you. Some stole from you. Some hurt you in ways that you never, ever want to think about. And what broke your heart, at least in part, is that sense that this is not the way that a father should be. This, is how, this isn't how it's supposed to be. He shouldn't act like this. He shouldn't leave us. He shouldn't hurt us. And you know what God says to that? You're right. He shouldn't. But he did. And there's no going back. But I'll be for you what he could never be. Do you know that in the gospel you get a better father? A perfect father. How does that father look at you? He looks at you like he looks at the son. Look, Jesus from all eternity has been the beloved of the father. Nothing is more precious to him. No blessing is higher than him. No reward is greater than him. Jesus is the father's treasure shared with us. It's the father's heart given to us. And when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's so the father can pull you close and say, so I can be with you. So I can heal your hurts and take the things that you're embarrassed about and use them to make you wise. So I can love you in the places you don't think you're lovable at all. In the ancient world, who got adopted? Who, who came into wealthy people's families? Good people. People had their stuff together. But in God's family, who does the father adopt? Bad people. People who can't get their things together. People who are foolish. People who are needy. 
people who are spun up about all kinds of things and who are anxious and sad and proud and anxious and sad and proud. And they crash and they go home. And over spring break, they just watch a bunch of Netflix. Those are God's people. And he delights to adopt those people. Look, some of y'all walk around and say things to yourself about yourself that you wouldn't ever say to another person. You cuss at yourself. And you say things you're I could never say from up here without losing my job. But you say horrible cuss words to yourself. You call yourself stupid, an idiot, and bad, and ugly. You say things to yourself you would never say to anyone else. It's sometimes like on one of those uh, late night talk shows where celebrities read mean tweets about themselves that other people have written. Except we wrote the tweets and we're reading them to ourselves. But you speak to yourself like a mean master would speak to a slave. Do you see that God's word speaks a better word to your heart than you do? That the father says, I see how sad you are. I will be with you and I'll make it better. I see how much it pains you when you get drunk and you embarrass yourself. But I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to make you wise. He'll be gentle and kind to you in ways that you would never be with yourself. Because that's how the Father deals with us because of the Son. Well, what does the Son have to give? For all eternity, the Son has known the delight and the intimacy of the Father. That just as the Son is the delight and treasure of the Father, which the Father loves to give, the Father is the joy of the Son. There's this incredible passage in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 11. Where Jesus is praying and you get to hear his prayer life with the Father. And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things, the good news of the gospel, from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And then he says, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly at heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the offer that Jesus makes. His relationship with the Father shapes the rest that he provides. And the yoke. And the burden that he has to offer. Do you know that the rest we all seek is the rest to be with the Father? That's the only yoke that's easy. It's the only burden that's light. It is closeness and intimacy with God, not as a judge, but as a loving father. And Jesus delights to give it. That's why he gives you his spirit to cry out, Abba, Dad, Father. Because that's how he talks to his father. And the father delights to hear you and to hear your heart. Like some of you have had parents where it was never okay to be angry or never okay to be sad. Where you always had to be happy and pleasant and have your stuff together. Do you know what the father gives to you? He doesn't want to fake. He doesn't want your performance. He wants to really, he wants to hear your heart. So do you know what he gives to you? He gives you a spirit. And he gives you the Psalms. He says, not only do I welcome you, but I welcome your anger. I welcome your sadness. I mean, there's tons of joy in the Psalms. There's tons of anger and sadness. And God says, I'm going to give you the words to say the things that you would never be able to say. But that are there because I want your heart For instance, Psalm 88, a very sad psalm. 
But someone speaking to God and they say, you've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so I can't escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Hear that sadness? Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Are your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Hear that anger? But God delights to hear your heart. And so he will give you the words to say to him. And how does that end? Darkness is my only friend. The end. You'd never write that ending for yourself. But God gives you those words because he's a father who loves you. And who wants to hear the heart of his child. Look, even when you're sad and you have nothing else to give but your sadness, he wants it because he wants you. Look, if you want God's power, look at creation. Look at the hugeness of space, the age of the cosmos, the power of a supernova, the beauty of a mountain range. It's all there in display. But if you want to know God's heart, look at Jesus. Look at the one who says, let the children Come to me. Receive him. Own him and be owned by him. Don't just know God, but be known by God. And find real rest for your souls. There was an eight-year-old boy who had a younger sister who was dying of leukemia. And he was told that without a blood transfusion that she was going to die. And his parents explained to him that his blood was probably compatible with hers. And if so, he could be the blood donor. And they asked him if they could do a test to find out if he was a match or not. So he said, sure. So they did, and it was a good match. And then they asked him if he would give his sister a pint of his blood. And that if he could, that that might be her only chance of living. And he said, you have to think about it overnight. So he goes upstairs, and he goes to sleep, and he thinks about it. And the next day, he comes down to his parents, and he says, gosh, I've thought about it, and I'm, I'm willing to donate the blood. So they take him to the hospital, and he's put on this gurney next to his six-year-old sister. And both of them get hooked up to an IV, and a nurse withdraws a pint of blood from the boy. And then he, she puts it into the girl's IV. And the boy closes his eyes, and he lays on the gurney in silence. And he watches his blood drip into his sister. And the doctor comes over to check on him and see how he's doing. And he says, hey, man, how you doing? How's it going, champ? And the boy opens his eyes and he asks, how soon until I start to die? The boy thought he was going to die to save his sister. Jesus knew that he would die to save you. God gladly gives the cost of his treasure, his son, to you and says, come and be with me. Crowd to me, give me your heart. Come and be my child. That's the beauty and the offer and the hope of the gospel. And it's yours for the taking. Amen. Let me pray for us. Um, Jesus, I pray that you would be with us. God, that we would see clearly your love and your heart. Lord, the way that you give yourself so freely to people like us. People who are anxious. People who are sad. People who are proud. People who are too busy not to put you as the last thing at the end of their day, and yet are still loved by you. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see your love, to rest in that love, Lord, and to own the reality that we are your children. God, for those of us here who are not, 
yet your children. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you standing there ready to embrace us. And God, that you would approach us even as we struggle to approach you. In your name we pray. Amen.